Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited because we are recording today on Friday the 13th, which I love. Yeah. So are you suspicious about Friday the 13th or do you like it? No, I'm not. Yeah. I just like magical numbers and stuff like that. I do too. And I actually have learned about sort of the feminine history of Friday the 13th. And I don't think we've talked about that before. No, I know nothing of this. So Friday is the only day of the week named for a woman, the Norse goddess Freya. And 13 is the average number of menstrual cycles a year, which is also the average number of lunar cycles a year. And the moon is often connected to like divine feminine V. And 13 has been considered a lucky or like auspicious number by many cultures and traditions throughout human history. So I, I actually that. really love this day. Then it makes sense that we make it into a like spooky day because that's the patriarchy taking power away from from women's power, feminine power. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. There are some fun articles about this. We'll put some in the show notes. There's one I think on Vice.com that talks about sort of how patriarchy stole Friday the Thirteenth. So I love it. So so it's the Friday the Thirteenth. Yesterday was twelve twelve. Mm-hmm. And at 12, mm-hmm. 12 a.m. on the 12th was the last full yes. moon of the year. Yes. <laughs> so this is a very magical time where I feel like the veil is very thin. And on a personal note, yeah. um, well, two things. One, I woke up at 3.33 this morning, just like enrolled over, went back to sleep. But anytime there's repetition of numbers, I'm like, ooh, that's something cool. And tomorrow, yeah. December 14th, would have been my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's birthday. So I'm like, there's a lot of just magic in the air, which is perfect for yeah. holiday time. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Very cool. So before we dive into our listener request episode, which we're so excited about, uh, we wanted to mm-hmm. share a couple of announcements. So we have a new Apple podcast review. Yay! Yay! So Chesh and Tig writes, Hit a chord with me. Oh my gosh, the quote that you read about the word blessed and the problems that come with it associated with unearned privilege really resonated with me. That's one of our favorite phrases, resonated with me. Um, I've felt kind of odd about that word and couldn't put my finger on why. Thanks for that discussion. We're so glad that was useful. We've gotten some good feedback on that episode about hashtag blessed. Yeah, we really have. And I started and Katie and I have been collaborating on a new Spotify playlist. It's called Kindred's 2019 Year in Celebration, and it is up and live, so you can follow it today for some jams. I will say, our last playlist was kid-friendly. This one is not so much. There's a bit of Lizzo and (laughs) Kesha, and there definitely is some swearing, so... (laughs) You might want to save it for grown-ups only time, but these are just some songs that we wanted to share with you all that gave us life this year, some fun and poppy ones and some more chill and healing ones. So um, yeah, we're just happy to happy to put that together for y'all. Yeah. And if there's a song you really love that you want to add to it, let us know. We'll, we'll put it on yes, there. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. And since we're at the end of the year, we want to thank our very faithful patrons who have helped keep the show running, who've helped us pay for the cost of hosting our website and our audio. Mm -hmm. So just to thank them by name, Allison, Anna, Jan, Jennifer, 
Katie, Lee, Linda, two Sarahs, and Susan. So thanks you all for supporting our show. It means so much to us. And if you have been thinking about supporting Kindreds, we would love for you to become a patron today. Go over to patreon.com slash kindreds and you can sign up there. Yes. Yay. So. Yay. Yay! Listener request episode, second annual. Yes, it's our annual tradition now. <laughs> yeah, we've been on uh, or doing the podcast long enough to have an annual tradition. I really love that. This is true. Yeah. So this was the time when we ask everyone to help us shape the content of the episode by asking us questions or raising topics that maybe we haven't had a chance to cover in an episode this year. And we actually got a lot of questions mm-hmm. in our Patreon group on Facebook, as well as Katie's Twitter and email. And they're really good questions. Y'all hit yeah. us pretty hard <laughs> with, some, <laughs> with some good questions. We were going through these and trying to figure out how to put them all together and shape the episode. And we realized very quickly that there is a lot we could talk about. Each question, honestly, could serve as its own episode. Definitely. So we're going to think about how to dedicate a few episodes in 2020 to some of these topics because they really do deserve a lot more attention and conversation than we can give them today. So let's get started. Yeah, definitely. Let's do it. All right. I will read the first question and you'll tackle it. Yeah, sounds sounds good. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Sarah P. wrote us an email in response to our episode about the term blessed. And she says, hi, Katie and Ashley. I listened to your latest episode last week about gratitude. And while I agreed with much of what you said about what blessed doesn't mean, you didn't spend much time talking about what it does mean. Blessed is still an important word in the Christian faith tradition. So if we wanted to reclaim it and use it in a more theologically meaningful way, what would that look like? I'm going to somewhat answer my own question as food for thought for you all, but would certainly love to hear your ideas as well. I read somewhere in the last couple years the idea that calling something blessed is the act of recognizing or naming the presence of God that is already present in that person or place or thing. I looked through the book where I think I read it. Of course, I couldn't find it, so I can't (laughs) offer a better description than that, but I think there's at least a nugget of an interesting idea there. Love your podcast. Keep up the great work. Great question. And now I feel like there has to be a little bit of a confession because (laughs) we think Mercury was in retrograde when we recorded because when I went to export my audio to hand over to Ashley to edit it, it got messed up. Like something funky happened with my computer. So there were these gaps where there was no audio coming through. And so Ashley had to do some really creative um, splicing of the episode. And you might have even noticed there was a time when I was kind of like whispering into the mic. And that's because I was re-recording a part because my daughter was asleep next door. So that's what happened. So Ashley actually did talk a little bit about this. It just didn't make it into the episode. So Ashley, do you remember what you shared about Jesus and the word blessed? A little bit. I remember talking about the Beatitudes. And I think, Sarah, this is where the theology of blessed, like this is what I think of when I think about the Christian meaning of blessed. And we're in thinking about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about um, blessed are those who are poor, who hunger, who mourn. And in that sermon he's giving, he's challenging the very idea of being blessed as being prosperous in an earthly way. And I think he's getting at what you're saying, that being blessed is being recognized as a creation of God mm-hmm. and being worthy. Yeah. And so that that's kind of what I said on the episode, paraphrased a little bit. But um, 
What do you think about that, Katie? I agree with that. And I've also think about as a pastor being called to bless certain things. For example, my organization has been doing blessings of abortion clinics. And what we say when we do that is the space is already blessed. We're here to affirm that this is sacred Mm -hmm. already and that we don't actually have the power to do this divine thing, which is to bless, but to just recognize the blessing that is already there. So we Mm -hmm. completely agree with you. And I think what we were mostly pushing back against was the secularization of the word bless, where we take the divine out of it. So Mm -hmm. Sarah, you're totally right. It's not enough to throw away any word that's important to us theologically. Um, The calling is to figure out how we reclaim and reframe it. So thanks for the challenge and for your good thoughts, which we, which we resonate with to use our favorite phrase. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I don't really have much to add to this, but I did want to say that your email and question has got me thinking lately about how American culture and capitalism have shaped American Christianity Mm. so much that it can be hard to separate out what's actual theology and what's just church branding, Mm. for lack of a better word. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think hashtag blessed is a really good example of this. Like there is a real theological understanding of what it means to bless or to be blessed, but that is largely drowned out by our culture. So um, I don't have a whole lot else to say about that. It's just something I've been really pondering and I think deserves some, deserves a little thought. So thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Maybe we need to do like a troubling theologies um, oh, Lord. <laughs> series and we could do prosperity gospel thinking and take oh. that on because anyway, lots and lots of episode ideas are coming from this conversation. That's my favorite thing about the listener request episode yes. it really kind of gets our creative juices flowing and it helps us, uh, it helps us know what everybody else is out there thinking about too. Yeah. All right. Are you ready right. for the next one? Yes. Okay. Allison Anderson from our Patreon group said, I have a request. You all talk sometimes about being hurt by the church or damaging things the church does, i.e. purity culture, etc. I'm just starting to journey back to Christianity after basically shutting off that part of myself for many years after a fundamentalist upbringing. I'm becoming aware that there's a lot out there about deconstruction, but I don't really know where to start. It seems overwhelming. Any advice? The good part is that we have a great progressive, thoughtful faith community. Well, that's awesome um, Mm -hmm. that we are plugged into locally, but I usually feel several steps behind. Like I've missed working through the basics for myself. All right. You want to take this one? Oh, just a little tiny topic about reconstructing your faith. (laughs) Yeah. Allison, I love your question so much. It really speaks to my heart because I have been there and I will share my thoughts on this. And Katie, if you have any others, please feel free to jump in. First off, I am really glad you have a faith community that aligns with your values. That is a lot harder to find depending on where you live. And I am one of those folks that has not yet been able to find a faith community that aligns with my values. And so I think you're starting from a great place. I should say I was not raised fundamentalist. I have, We've talked about this on the podcast before, but I grew up in a mainline Protestant denomination, Methodist, and because I live in the Deep South, though, the values were pretty conservative and leaned evangelical. But when I was a teenager, I got involved with a youth organization that had this shiny veneer of like cool, modern praise and worship. You know, you can wear jeans to services. <laughs> what is it about wearing jeans? I swear. Overnight co-ed retreats, you know, like it 
it had this veneer of cool and like maybe a little bit progressive, but at its heart, it was deeply fundamentalist and it was really harmful to the faith that I was building in those really formative years. And I've shared some of this stuff with Katie before and we've considered making an episode around (laughs) this idea of like youth based retreats and the kind of emotional manipulation that happens mm-hmm. um, yeah. of young people when they are really in that that time in their life where they want to belong to something and it's just can be kind of predatory and not so great but I haven't really been ready to talk about it honestly in a full way because a lot of people in my life were also part of this and I just yeah. haven't quite figured out how to say the things I need to say without hurting people I love so I would say I have spent the last 15 years unraveling the damage that was done by that experience. And ultimately, where I have come on my journey is exploring the concept of inner wisdom and how fundamentalism, evangelicalism is completely at odds with inner wisdom. And I think that's the real tragedy of Mm -hmm. those two traditions. We're told that we can't trust our inner voice because it's always coming from a place of sin and selfishness and like human, you know, bodily corruption. And that sometimes it's even the devil trying to lead us astray. And essentially, over time, we learn that we shouldn't trust ourselves, that we should trust the authority of the church, church leaders, and that we should trust the literal Bible. But As creations of God, I believe we all carry a spark of the divine and God is present within us. So for me, I think the beginning of what you call deconstruction is to learn to listen to and trust your inner wisdom because that is God. And I also think that opening yourself to the mysteries of the universe and learning to be okay with not having all the answers is a huge part of the journey because fundamentalism, what it offers is this certitude. Mm -hmm. answers we know the answers and they're this Mm -hmm. and there is one way to interpret the bible and it's this way and so learning to be okay with the mystery and the wonder and not having answers and being comfortable with doubt all of that is part of deconstruction so i wanted to offer though some resources for you and off the top of my head these are a few authors and books that have come to mind that helped me in the beginning especially So we've talked before about Rachel Held Evans. She was instrumental in helping me begin the process of reclaiming my inner wisdom. She has a book called Faith Unraveled, which I read when it was still called Evolving in Monkey Town. And it's the story of how she went from fundamentalist evangelical to learning to ask questions and challenge the answers that she'd been told by the church all her life. And I think that's a good one to start if you haven't read it. You can't go wrong with any of her books, honestly, but that's a good starting place. I also loved Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, which challenges our traditional notions of heaven and hell and our like sort of Christian tendency to really need to define like who's in and who's out and who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and and really exploring that idea. Mm -hmm. And then we've talked on the podcast before about Sue Monk Kidd's book, Dance of the Dissident Daughter which I really recommend if your heart is leading you to explore concepts of the divine feminine and all the ways that our understanding of God as father has caused harm and cut us off as women from our own inner voices. So those are just a few books, and I was doing a little digging yesterday, and I found an article on Relevant Magazine 
We'll put it in the show notes. It's called How to Deconstruct Your Faith Without Losing It. And I found it really beautiful. Um, So I encourage you to look for this and and read it. Uh, We'll put it in the show notes. It's an interview with authors Sarah Bessie, Mike McHarg, and Father Richard Rohr on why real faith begins with doubt. So those are some things I have to offer you. Katie, you got anything else, suggestions? I love what you laid out there. And I think that another piece of it, well, two things. One is allow yourself to feel the feelings that you feel from your fundamentalist upbringing. Because Mm -hmm. I know for me, when I stepped away from evangelicalism, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of anger. And that stuff needs to be healed. And it might Mm -hmm. take the rest of your life, but be okay with having those feelings um, because it's not enough to just replace it with a new set, with a new frame. Like mm-hmm. there's, there is pain there that, that you should tend to. Um, so I want to offer that. And also I think our minds and our intellects are one piece of it. And like, we can learn through books and things, but just as Ashley was saying, really creating space for your inner voice to come out, whatever practice mm-hmm. that looks like, whether that's yoga or meditation, because it's not just about like, intellectually knowing it's a it's it's about Mm -hmm. it's about the sacred the divine that's already within you that already knows the truth and allowing Mm -hmm. that to come forward so creating space for that and i i I know what you mean when you feel like oh well like these people have been learning more and i don't know xyz i think we're all just guessing (laughs) theologically and actually what you said about the comfort of uncertainty is what i feel like i spent $60,000 at seminary for. (laughs) So you can get it for free, which is just allowing yourself to be comfortable with the not knowing. And that open heartedness actually Mm -hmm. will, will create deep and a meaningful connection in your community because you all can explore authentically together. And and the mystery is what's so exciting about faith to me is like, we don't really know. And it's, it's really fun to think about it and explore and find what resonates at different times. And to know that your faith will continue to evolve, even if you mm-hmm. feel like you get to the next step, like I'm constantly evolving. Ashley and I are constantly evolving yes. and trying new things. And rather than it being scary, it can become a really adventurous, fun thing to try out. So we're just so happy for you and glad to be a resource for you. Um, and just know we're cheering you on. Yeah. So thank you for that question. We also got a lot of questions about what we call reproductive freedom and dignity, and we're going to dedicate a longer episode about this in 2020, but we did want to give some response to these really tough and important questions. So here's one from Katie from our Patreon group. I'm listening to your latest episode of Kindreds. I have listened to every episode, and I don't think you've talked about miscarriage specifically, and I don't know how it would fit into your theme, but I have been thinking it would be a good topic. Just because a whole bunch of people have told me stuff like, it's not your timing, it's God's timing, which I think they may mean as comforting, but it's anything but. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Katie, first of all, um, our hearts are going out mm-hmm. to you during this time of loss and grief, as well as just dealing with dumb people who yes. are not capable of holding your pain and grief when what you really need is support and just loving presence. So mm-hmm. we're, we're just so sorry that you're going through that and know that we're holding you in our hearts as you, as you find healing. Um, you're right. Miscarriage is so common. I think it's one in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage. Um, mm-hmm. so it's a very common experience, just like abortion, just like domestic violence, just like all the things we don't talk about. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it, it is stigmatized, uh, by the silencing that happens around it. It's, it's something that, I know um, I've not personally experienced miscarriage. It's happened to my family. It's happened in my friend group. Um, 
And it seems like the thing that someone only talks about after the fact, like well after the fact, rather than in the moment. Um, And I think that's probably because of the the reasons that you, you, that you shared, like people are not great about accompanying us through those times. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we're really uncomfortable in general with the fact that we're embodied beings, um, Mm -hmm. especially those of us who bleed or miscarry or give birth or breastfeed, like whatever combination of those things, like we're not Mm -hmm. good about that. Um, so, and in addition to that discomfort with the bodily element of all this, I just think people don't know how to be empathetic. Um, it's not something we teach, We don't know how to simply sit with someone and feel the pain that they're feeling and not run out the door. Um, And empathy Mm -hmm. is really about having healthy boundaries for yourself, um, which is, it sounds paradoxical, right? Because empathy is about feeling what someone else feels, but it's also not taking it on your, as your own pain permanently, right? Like it's about being able to be someone, accompany them in the moment and also say, being able to step back into your own reality. It's like that coming towards someone in a way so that you can heal. So, cause if we give everything to somebody, then like we can't differentiate ourselves from that person. So empathy is, is tricky, right? It's like putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and saying, but it's also not my pain. And I'm not going to make it about myself. And telling somebody how they should feel, trying to fix it for them. Like those are things we kind of mischaracterize as being like empathetic or sympathetic, like helping. But really that's not what it is. Right. And it's not about the person who's supporting you either. So like sometimes people will say, oh, that reminds me of this loss I experienced. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that might be a helpful way into someone else's pain, but it's not the time to bring it up. So I think what you're experiencing is really common, but that doesn't mean it's acceptable or okay at all. Mm -hmm. And then when people try to use God language around this, that this happened like quote unquote for a reason, their focus is not on what you need, but what, what they need to feel okay about the fact that you are suffering. Because your suffering reminds all of us that suffering is in our lives too. And like at any moment we could experience a loss, we could experience grief. Like we will, that's just part of this human experience, Mm -hmm. but we're so afraid of it that we try to fix it for somebody else. Cause we don't want to feel it. We don't want to be reminded of suffering. Um, Mm. and I'll just share like one anecdote that's not instructive at all, but was helpful to me when I was going through a very different experience, but was experiencing deep loss and grief over disappointment. And I was crying to a friend who was a pastor. And what she said to me was, I don't know when this pain will stop for you. But what I do know is that there are many people in my life who've gone through really painful times and they went on to experience joy in ways that they never could have imagined in the moment. And for some reason that really helped because I think it resonated as true for my own life that I could see times of disappointment and heartache leading to opportunities for growth and new possibilities that I didn't think about in the moment. And so I can't in good faith assure you that you're going to have the outcome that you want with regard to your family uh, as much as I want that for you. But I can offer from my own experience that life is ever changing and we never stay in the place of suffering forever. Things swing back and forth and there will be joy for you in the future. And we can't wait to hear all about it. But in the meantime, know that we're holding your grief and your pain as you journey through this and knowing that you're going to have scars from this. It's never going to go away. You will just learn to incorporate it into your life story in a different way. Right now, it's very raw. It will not always be this raw. Yeah. So we're sending you some good healing thoughts. Absolutely. Um, So another kind of question unrelated, but related from Casey Wildflower Enterprises on Twitter. 
She asked for a conversation about ethical adoptions and to address coercive practices that happen with international and domestic adoptions. I would be interested in research from the reproductive rights side about empowerment for birth moms. Whoa, there's a lot packed into yeah. that little tweet. Yeah, that was 140 <laughs> characters of. Woo, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so first of all, this question speaks to exactly why the concept of reproductive freedom is so much more than just about being pro-choice. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the term reproductive justice before on the podcast, but I think the de- definition would be helpful here. As defined by the group Sister Song, reproductive justice is the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, to have children, to not have children, and to parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. I think that that definition helps us remember that a lot of people get so caught up in the freedom to not have children that they forget that for many people, the right to have children and parent them safely is also at risk. Especially in countries and communities with fewer resources, extreme poverty can lead parents to believe that placing their child for adoption is their only option. And unfortunately, there are organizations that prey on this belief in order to provide children to adoptive parents in wealthier communities or countries. Now, mm-hmm. Katie and I have spent some time doing some research, and we very quickly realized that the issues surrounding both international and domestic adoption are huge and complex, and it's incredibly difficult on the internet, especially to determine which resources you can trust that aren't skewed in some way. And so unfortunately, we're not going to be able to talk much more about this today, but we will keep this in mind for future episodes about reproductive dignity and a more expansive understanding of what it means to to have reproductive freedom. We'll also put this out there for our listeners. If any of you can point us towards some credible resources or some people to talk to or some conversations to have, we would welcome any suggestions for that. Yeah, this is an area of learning and growth for us too. It is. Mm Because this is just not the area that we focused on, but it's so Mm -hmm. incredibly important that we, if we truly are going to support reproductive freedom and dignity, that means supporting people through the adoption process, whether that's the child, Mm -hmm. the birth parents, the adoptive parents, all of the above. Like, what does that look like? Um, What does radical justice look like in that when there's going to be rupture and pain? And I feel Mm -hmm. like we've done it so poorly But I know that there are folks who are trying to navigate this better. Um, So, yeah, it would be great to bring uh, an expert on this onto the show, because I don't think even if we research this for (laughs) several months, we don't have personal experience with it. Yeah, I'd be really afraid we wouldn't be able to do the topic justice. So um, I would love to be able to talk to somebody who knows more about this than we do, for sure. Absolutely. Great question. All right. Yeah, great question. And our next question comes from a friend of the podcast and friend of Katie's, Ashley Easter, who is at Ashley M. Easter on Twitter. Mm -hmm. How can we support making child marriage illegal while still supporting girls' autonomy? There is a group of reproductive rights activists who keep trying to knock out child protection laws that come up for a vote that would disallow marriage under 18. Ooh, okay. So yeah. we also had to do some research on this because we were not aware that this was happening. And we actually don't know the exact reasons why reproductive rights activists have tried to interfere with these mm-hmm. kinds of laws. So we were talking before the show, and our best guess is either these laws 
set a precedent for either undermining LGBTQ marriage equality Mm -hmm. and or start chipping away at a girl's ability to make a reproductive decision for herself. So we know that like there are parental consent laws in many states that require girls to get parental uh, parental notification before they get an abortion procedure. And those are the kinds of things that reproductive rights, rights activists would push back against. So that's kind of our best guess. So, but back to, sorry, did you have more that you wanted to share? Cause I know you're doing some research. Just that the other thing that sometimes happens is in a law that is good at its heart, there are a bunch of extra things attached to it that sometimes go too far. And so sometimes that's what groups might be protesting is the the wording of the law and not actually the intent of the law. And so I just I was really surprised to read that in your tweet that um, and when I started looking it up, it does seem like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU have challenged um, child protection laws in, I think, California specifically. So I was very uh, surprised to see that. Yeah. Back to the question, how can we support making child marriage illegal while still supporting girls autonomy? Because I was trying to think, like, mm-hmm. what is what's the difference between preventing a girl from entering into a marriage Versus preventing a girl from getting health care that she needs. And Mm because I think folks could use the same argument to support or be against both of those things at the same time. Mm -hmm. So this might not be a complete answer, but I do think it's a place to start. So when we talk about making child marriage illegal, we're not talking about controlling the way a girl uses her body um, or even from the kind of relationship that she's in. Mm -hmm. But if we keep her from getting married in a contract with the state, we're preventing her from entering into a legally binding contract with another person. So mm-hmm. we're preventing a minor child from getting bound legally, financially, and even medically with an, with another person, which just seems problematic for me because there's a power, there's a power differential there. So I think mm-hmm. that's the distinction. Um, we make child marriage illegal. We're protecting a girl from, from a legal system that might, where she might be taken advantage of or giving really somebody else control over her body. So then when we talk about her bodily autonomy, getting healthcare, like for me, they're kind of the same thing. Like we're protecting her bodily autonomy by allow making sure she has the healthcare that she needs and also keeping her from being legally bound to a romantic partner um, before she is of age. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that resonates with you, but. It does. And I think that this is a great opportunity to plug the need for high quality evidence-based sex education in schools, churches, at home, everywhere. Because we think of sex ed as learning the basics of reproduction, the birds and the bees, preventing pregnancy and STIs, and that's about it. But a good sex ed program offers so much more helping young people create and maintain healthy relationships, how to have healthy boundaries, how to identify red flags and potential for violence in their relationships, Mm -hmm. and to stand up for themselves in coercive situations, and also just how to develop a plan for their lives and see a bigger picture beyond just high school. So I think that one way to show respect for the bodily autonomy of young people and uh, to empower them is to advocate for their access to this kind of really good, high-quality information. We can still, at the same time, raise the marriage age to 18 and make sure that we're protecting them from, like you said, that like lasting binding legal contract. But we can also show them respect by beginning to prepare them for healthy relationships way before that. I mean, we could start as early as pre-K and kindergarten with some of this information to lay the groundwork for being able to identify and cultivate healthy relationships across their lifespan. So I think the thing I love about your question, Ashley, is that it 
reminded me that we haven't really done an episode where we've talked much about like young people and mm-hmm. the way that young people, us as young people, but the, the young people that sort of the issues around reproductive rights and what that means when you're under 18. And I would love to dig into this topic more yeah. on a future episode. So I want to bookmark this one for sure. Yeah. And I, I think even within our movement, young people get marginalized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it, it is critical. And just thinking about child marriage at a, on a global scale, mm-hmm. we know preventing child marriage is so important for lowering rates of maternal mortality and unattended yep. pregnancy and keeping girls in school. Because oftentimes what happens is a girl will get married before she turns 18 and then she's no longer attending school. So mm-hmm. there's lots and lots of great reasons to prevent girls from getting married um, before they turn 18. I think it's just that the logic has to be such that it keeps intact her bodily autonomy autonomy to make healthcare decisions about her body, especially her reproductive dignity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks to all of you amazing people yeah. for your great questions. And we'll definitely be having longer conversations about lots of these topics in 2020. So stay tuned and stay subscribed. Yes. Yeah. So Ashley, I have a question I want to ask you. Okay. Okay. So we are entering a new decade, 2020. I can't believe it. I know. It so crazy. So 2020, it's a new decade. It's going to be a huge, important year. But I'm wondering if you've thought about like the last decade of your life and what some of the major milestones have been because 10 years is a long time. So tell me about like the last 10 years. Tell me oh, all about Katie. it. <laughs> Well, how much time do we have? (laughs) How much time do we have? Okay, so uh, the short answer is the the Ashley that sits before you today is quite different from (laughs) the Ashley of 2010. Dear judge, (laughs) I am a changed woman. I am a changed woman. So I'll just, you know, hit some of the high points because in the past 10 years, I have gotten married and divorced and then married again. And now I have a son. All right. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot. And anybody that has uh, followed a similar trajectory of being in a sort of life-changing relationship that ends, like, it just – and then starting a new life-changing relationship, like, that shapes you in such a huge way. Um, and I'm definitely not the person I was 10 years ago. <laughs> On the career front, 10 years ago, I was living and working in Tennessee as a registered dietitian. And then I got laid off. And moved back to Mississippi, where I tried out a few other nutrition jobs um, before finally starting a nonprofit focused on reproductive rights advocacy, which I'm still doing. And it is now about to enter its sixth year. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. um, A lot has changed for me. So how about you? Oh, my goodness. There's some parallels for sure. So 10 years ago, okay, 2010, Mm -hmm. I was living in D.C., I had a different partner. Um, I was starting the maternal health project for the United Methodist Church, which is how we got connected. And Mm -hmm. that year I broke up with my boyfriend at the time and I also met my future husband, although we did not get together for quite a while after that. Um, Moved to North Carolina from D.C., got engaged, got married, had my daughter, left a toxic job. Became board chair of the Religious Coalition, of which I'm now the executive director. Or no, excuse me, the chief executive officer of CEO. <laughs> CEO. Yes. Started my own business, wrote a book, started this podcast with you. Yes. 
Um, started teaching group fitness, got ordained, mm. bought a new house. Did I mention I had my daughter? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. You I did. was like, I might have missed I think, that. I think you did. I had a I had a kid in there too. So yeah, so much has changed and tremendous growth. And it's like I'm so proud of where I am now. And I hope yeah. you are proud of where you are too. I am. It feels good. It feels good. I, the article that I mentioned um, in response to one of the earlier questions that the one about deconstructing your faith without losing it has a quote that I think is pretty relevant. And it, I think it's a nice way, if you'll indulge me, to wrap up our year-end episode. Okay. So this is from the article. I look back at who I was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and even five years ago, and we are always growing Bessie says. So this is Sarah Bessie who was mm-hmm. interviewed in the article. And I think that's part of the point. If you're not growing, changing, and evolving, you're not paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do. Bessie's realistic about the fact that this changing and evolving process isn't something you can rush through, and she's under no delusions about being at the end of her transformation. There are lots of opinions and ideologies and political views that I have now that will probably be very different in five or ten years from now, she says. And that doesn't scare me anymore, as much as it does feel like this is sort of a journey. If we're not growing and changing, we're missing it. Oh, hallelujah. Yeah. I love that. Very good. So we will see you all in 2020 with a brand new episode. (laughs) A brand new decade brand new episode a new decade um y'all have safe and happy holidays or just you know holidays get through them (laughs) and we'll be here to catch you on the other side yeah sending love talk to you then talk to you then thanks for listening you can find us on our website kindredspodcast.com that's kindreds with an s or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com you can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 